Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Tonight, uh, we're here to celebrate the release of Anne-Marie Kenny's book, Radio Iris, a novel that T.C. Boyle described as a revelation, whimsical, charming, and beautifully observed novel. In Los Angeles Magazine, Susan Salter Reynolds called Kenny a Southern California Camus, and Brooklyn Rail wrote that her novel is a finely crafted, subtle thriller fraught with subdued humor. Her work has appeared in Black Clock, Indiana Review, and Keyhole and has been performed by LA's Word Theater. She's a graduate of USC in CalArts and lives in Los Angeles. Radio Iris is her first novel, so let's give her a big launch party welcome. Anne-Marie Kinney. Hi. I'm short. <laughs> uh, thanks for coming. Can you hear me okay? Okay, um, so I'm going to start off by just telling you a little bit about the book. Um, Radio Iris is the story of a, a shy, daydreaming receptionist in an office that grows increasingly mysterious and unnerving as uh, time goes on. Uh, at the beginning, we're introduced to Iris's kind of drab, workaday existence, uh, which she offsets with a rich inner life and a passion for oldies pop radio. Um, but then, coinciding with the onset of um, an unsettling recurring dream that seems to find her night after night, she starts to notice oddities in her office. Um, certain coworkers seem to have vanished. Her boss's strange habits and uh, unexplained absences. The fact that trash is piling up and she can't remember the last time she saw the janitor. Uh, but before she can piece together all these oddities, she's distracted by the arrival of a stranger, a man who appears to have taken up residence in the office next door. Um, and uh, her curiosity gets the better of her. She watches the parking lot for the comings and goings of his white van, and her curiosity spirals into an obsession marked by notes passed under doors and holes drilled in walls. Uh, and just as the fabric of normalcy is disintegrating around her, uh, she looks to this stranger to unlock the mysteries within. So uh, that's my little intro. Uh, the chapters are quite short, so I'm just going to read a few of them to give a little, little taste of the book. Numbers. When Iris arrives at the office, she finds that there are 33 messages in her voicemail box. The first 29 are misguided fax machine. She sits through each high-pitched squeal until the system gives her the option of erasing it. 
Three more are from her boss, who has just landed in Europe. The messages are each about five minutes apart. In the first one, he angrily asks her where she is. In the second message, he apologizes for the previous message, explaining that he miscalculated the time difference, but to please call him when she gets in. In the third one, he apologizes in advance for his impatience, but explains with increasing ire that he needs her to call him right away. The 33rd message is another fax machine. She quickly dials her boss's cell phone. He picks up after two rings, and it sounds as though he's at some kind of sporting event or street riot. He yells into the phone, thank God, listen, I need you to do me a favor. Okay. She has her pen poised over a fresh yellow post-it note. Okay. Yes? I'm sorry, it's very loud here. I'm in a meeting. Okay. What do you need? I need you to call the Spear Garden Hotel in Zurich and ask them two questions. One, in what room is Mr. Franz Wilmar staying? And two, what is their fax number? Do you need me to fax something to Mr. Vilmar? Yes, obviously. In the file cabinet directly to the left of my desk, you'll find a folder marked miscellaneous. The piece of paper in the very front of this folder, the first paper you see, needs to be faxed to Mr. Vilmar post-haste. Okay, do you have the number for the hotel? I... Hold on. She listens as he yells something unintelligible. There's a crash, and it sounds as though the phone has been dropped. Suddenly, her boss is back on the line. Hello, 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 hello. Y yes? Okay, I don't have the number, just forget it, or find the number or something, I have to go. He hangs up. She looks up Speargarten online and finds seven hotels in Zurich under some variation of that name. She finds the paper, a list of names she doesn't recognize in two long columns, and starts calling. It makes her feel momentarily exotic to send faxes and make calls to far-flung locales. She feels privileged to know the appropriate country codes, but she also knows that she's just pressing the same numbers in a different pattern. Smoke. With her boss still gone, the day takes on a looseness that Iris doesn't quite know what to do with. Occasionally, she'll hear footsteps in the hallway, outside, people passing to and from the restrooms, in and out of offices she's never seen. How do they arrange their furniture? Who sits behind their front desks? She knows there are people in her own office behind more doors, but she can't say she feels their presence. Every now and then, the phone will ring and she will answer. One moment, please, she says, and with the press of a button, she's alone again. She listens to several messages accumulated over lunch from people she doesn't know who leave phone numbers but no area codes or give only first names. Wrongly assumed familiarity is rampant today. Her boss calls at one point and asks her to find a post-it note on his desk with a series of numbers scrawled on it in pencil. No, not that one. The one next to it. What color is it? No, the green one. She finds the right one and reads the numbers off to him. He thanks her and hangs up quickly. She spends the rest of the afternoon going through the files on her computer, making sure they're still organized in a way that she understands. Click, save, yes, okay. Then, toward four o'clock, when the air conditioning starts to make her feel roomy and the recycled air starts to dry out her skin, she becomes suspicious and then absolutely certain that she smells cigar smoke. She's always liked the idea of cigars, the warmth of poker games and whiskey, but the smell, it's only good in theory. It's thicker, denser, more pungent than cigarette smoke, but she still feels like a hypocrite, a year-old half-empty pack of Marlboro Lights in her purse that she dips into every once in a long while. The stale, musky odor of it is filling the reception area. Her eyes are beginning to water. 
She leans over her desk and is startled to see the smoke coming in thickly under the door, an amorphous white cloud of it expanding lugubriously through her space. For a second she feels that something magical must be happening and she's unprepared for magic. Her throat is burning now and she doesn't know what to do. Soon the smoke alarm will go off or the sprinklers. They have those, right? They must? What does a person do? She searches the ceiling. And then she becomes aware of music playing, slowly increasing in volume. It starts out as a drum beat, so quiet it might be her heart. It gets ever so slightly louder, louder until the sound falls into a familiar pattern, the sharply dated sound of a saxophone and keyboards filling the air with electric dots. She feels a thrumming vibration in her veins. A little louder and it drowns out her thoughts. She's trapped in the sound now, the smoke still creeping in and she starts to panic. Finally, she gets up from her desk and steps out into the hallway. The smoke is billowing out from underneath the door of suite 2B, the office that meets 2A at a corner, the restroom separating them from the suites at the other end of the second floor. There's no sign on the door, no name. The music grows louder still, the wild festiveness of the saxophone blind the accompanying murk as the smoke forms a hazy wall in front of the door. She steps forward and knocks, her eyes filling with dry, stinging tears. The music fades slightly, and a crackling, youthful-sounding male voice answers. Yeah? She clears her throat. I'm sorry, but are you smoking a cigar? Or cigars? After a long pause, the reedy voice behind the door begins to mumble something unintelligible. No, he finally says clearly. It must be somebody else. I, I'm sorry, but it's just... The smoke looks like it's coming from your office, and it's probably going to set off. Do you, do you want me to turn down the music? No, that's okay. It's just the music abruptly switches over to a somber piano concerto, the volume slowly decreasing until it is barely audible. She stands there for a moment trying to think of a proper response, and finding none says thank you, returns to her office, and gathers her things. It's a full hour before the usual closing time, but she feels that her excuse is valid. Plus, it's more than likely that no one will ever notice. In the parking lot, she starts her car and idles in her spot for a moment. A strange giddiness washes over her as she smells the smoke on her clothes, proof that she hasn't imagined any of this. When she can't bear the smell any longer, she rolls down the window and takes a deep breath. She starts the car and eases out of the spot, the sun hovering above her, contemplating its slow creep downward as if it has a choice. on a Thursday night. Iris lies in bed on her side, her rose quilt covering her head so she's enveloped in a hothouse of her own breath, with the foggy moonlight arcing through the open window. Slowly her weight shifts, slowly, slowly, until she is face down, and her head begins to slip inch by inch down the edge of the bed, taking the covers with her like a human landslide, her momentum building. But she hasn't fallen yet. She's having the dream again. She's sitting at the kitchen table, and it is bright outside, but musty inside the old house. There's nobody there. She's been sitting at the table a long time, legs crossed so they've lost all feeling. She feels immobile, leaden. Finally, like tearing off a band-aid, she uncrosses her legs and massages them from ankle to thigh, gasping as the pins and needles set in. When equilibrium has returned to her limbs, she rises and walks to the counter, where she finds a carton of milk next to the sink. All the windows are shut, so the silence has nowhere to travel. The silence stays put. She picks up the carton and it is lukewarm, nearly full. 
She opens the fridge, empty, and sets it on the middle shelf. She steps out of the kitchen, leaving her shoes at the edge where tile meets carpet, and goes down the dark hallway toward the other end of the house. She opens the back door and steps out into the giant backyard with its single fig tree looming in the distance, letting the wind set the screen door flapping behind her. She steps into the dry grass and the blades prick the soles of her feet. The sun is on its way down, sitting now at eye level, a radioactive white scrawl across the landscape. The wind rolls, howling its song into her hair and through her clothes. She approaches the fig tree, grass crackling under each footstep, and suddenly birds erupt from its branches in a great flapping horde. In shadow like this, they could be bats, they could be anything. Amorphous black shapes now scattering across the sky, squeaking like metal on metal until they're so far away they make no sound at all. Iris takes a step back. The tree, she thinks, doesn't want her to come any closer. She closes her eyes and the wind turns colors in her mind. Blue, purple, and finally black. And she can feel the tree's roots rushing beneath the ground under her feet, undulating darkly toward the house. Suddenly she hears a clang, then a rattle, and opens her eyes to see a figure in shadow scrabbling up over the chain link fence. She watches as the figure hops down and takes off running down the long dirt road until whoever it is has vanished before her eyes, blended in with the night fog. She wakes up on the floor, still wrapped like a mummy. The quilt is tight around her nose and mouth. Panicked, she fumbles for an opening in the covers and sucks in the cool night air, her body filmed over with sweat. Bright and early. It's now five in the morning on Friday and Iris has climbed back into bed but has not managed to get back to sleep. She lies still on her back to accommodate the crick in her neck, her knees still smarting from the fall. She swims her legs around in circles under the sheets to loosen the blood, mentally infusing it with the power to quiet her whole self. But this is not sleep. Outside, birds are beginning to chirp. She opens her eyes, blinks, and decides that this is as good a time as any to get up. She throws the covers off and heads for the shower, tripping over her shoes in the dark. By a quarter to six, she's dressed in a gray knee-length skirt and a pale blue polyester blouse that looks almost like silk. She has tea and toast standing at the kitchen counter, watching the sky turn white outside, and outside the sliding glass door to her small balcony, which is bare save for some dry leaves and dirt, with a view overlooking the alley where someone has spray-painted, Larry, where's my money, bitch, on the wall of the apartment building next door. Ready for the day a couple of hours too early, she leaves for work. She might as well. There's nowhere else she can think of to go. Hers isn't the only car on the road, but every few blocks or so, she finds herself alone at an intersection, waiting on a red light at a corner that looks and feels abandoned. Stores with metal enclosures locked, empty bus shelters. She turns off the radio, cutting off Rod Stewart singing, I wish I'd never seen your face. Her eyes scan the desolate street, and it feels like an aftermath to something she missed, as though everyone but she got the memo to evacuate, paper bags and soda cans like tumbleweeds skittering across the pavement. Then a car pulls up beside her and her white-knuckled giddiness wanes. At the office, she gets the door unlocked, shuts off the burglar alarm, wanders from room to room, flipping on all the fluorescent lights, turns on printers and copiers. The office fills with the sound of rebooting, mechanical buzzes and clicks. It's all but alive. Once the suite is aglow in that greenish wash that has come to look normal to her, it doesn't matter what time it is. Artificial light gives no clues. There's just one window to the outside that is visible from her desk, just before the hallway. The window sits 15 feet off the ground, facing the street. 
Iris hoists herself up on her desk between the phone and computer. The window has bothered her for some time, though she only noticed it a few months ago. Too high for anyone to look out of, she can't imagine what it's for. And yet it was planned, blueprinted and built this way, a non-window that she only assumes looks out on the street because there's nothing on the other side of the wall in which it sits, if she's figured right. It's not even seven and her boss won't be in until at least nine. She wonders if there might be a custodian's closet somewhere in the building from which she might borrow a ladder. She could take full advantage of this time. It occurs to her then also that she is definitely, unquestionably, the first person here. She's in a position to watch the door, see who shows up. She promises herself that she will pay attention today. Iris straightens her spine and rolls her shoulders forward and back. She stretches her arms upward, and at the moment she locks her fingers together over her head, a loud ringing shocks her onto her feet, and she thinks for one panicked second that she's caused it, nudged some invisible lever in the air. Her eyes dart around the room, looking for a source, until she realizes it's coming from outside the door. She inches toward the sound and listens as the ringing changes pattern after a minute, turning into a more insistent series of shrieks. Suddenly the ringing stops and a distant, muffled male voice groans, Fuck. She opens the door a crack and sees that there's no one in the hallway. Then she hears a radio switched on, barely audible news, traffic, weather, she can't tell. There are only bright voices talking fast, and her eyes settle on the closed door of suite 2B. After a while, poised in the doorway like this, the voices on the radio lose the pattern of human speech. All she hears is a prolonged static hum. Then she realizes the station has been changed and what she hears is music, but it's so quiet she can't detect a melody. She fixes her eyes on the wall and enters into a state of semi-consciousness, letting the eggshell color of the wall blend with the lavender carpet to form a gauzy absence of vision. She thinks she could stay like this, looking and not looking, hearing and not hearing, for ages. So she's startled when the door opens and the man from 2B emerges in t-shirt and sweatpants, his cheeks darkly bristled. What Iris sees is only a streak of him as he passes, his beige and black and whiteness bleeding through the haze of the hallway but this is enough. He pauses for only a second in front of her door, though he doesn't turn to face her, and she pushes it swiftly shut. She stays where she is, her head against the door, and listens as he enters the restroom and shuts the door behind him. Iris returns to her desk and switches her computer on. She imagines him then, in the bathroom, stripping naked and washing each individual body part in the shallow sink, drying himself with paper towels. Would he be able to wedge himself under the faucet to wash his back, his crotch, does he drink water from the faucet too, or does he go without water, like a cactus needing nothing? Her computer turns on with a languid ding, and she has an impulse to get up and go back to his office while he's otherwise occupied to steal something as evidence or simply await his return. Then there's a knock at her door, and she freezes, making no move to answer. She holds her breath, as though whoever has knocked might hear the difference. Hello, comes her boss's voice. Are you in there? I forgot my key. Iris exhales and jumps up to open the door for him. It wasn't locked, she starts as he steps through the doorway. He takes off his sunglasses and jacket and holds them to his chest. Why are you here so early, she asks, flustered, as he passes her heading down the hall. Why are you, he says, before disappearing into his office. Iris spends the rest of the morning with her ears perked up like a dog's, one focused inside, the other out. With her left ear, she listens for any movements in the hallway, but there's only the opening and closing of doors, and she can't tell if any of them have been opened or closed by the man from 2B. Her right ear is trained toward her boss's office, from which there's been no sound since he arrived. 
Her listening game collapses any time the phone rings. After transferring a call to her boss, she has to divide up her hearing all over again, which takes concentration. Nothing comes of it, and by lunchtime she's ready to give up. She decides she will tackle the long put-off file cabinet reorganization upon her return. Out in the parking lot, Iris's gaze falls on the white van a few spaces down from her boss's convertible. She glances around the lot before approaching it, but she finds that its windows are the tinted kind that block everything out. The windows must have been an add-on because they don't match the beat-up exterior, though so smooth and new-looking. She runs a finger along the dirty, ba dirty back door and chews on her bottom lip. Windows used to be simpler, she thinks. Windows used to break. She sees then that she's drawn a distinct line in the dirt, and without thinking she picks it up again, running her finger all along the back, then slowly walking around to the side, dragging her finger just above the wheel wells, across the hood, and back around, so a thin, shaky white line seems to divide the van into two horizontal pieces, held together by a row of sharp teeth. She stands back and looks at it, surprised at her impulse, but, but it can't be undone now. She wipes her finger off on the inner hem of her skirt. After lunch, she knocks on her boss's closed door. He doesn't answer. She knocks again and waits. When he doesn't answer the third knock, she opens the door to find that he's gone again. The rest of the day passes slowly. There are no more phone calls. As the clock edges past three, she realizes just how long she's been here and feels like her mouth is drying out. The office feels emptier than ever. Her knees bounce under the desk as she coils the phone cord around her index and middle fingers, uncoils it, coils it again. She listens in vain for the man next door, pictures him in homey scenarios, folding laundry, cooking dinner, falling asleep like a kitten, trying not to, his eyelids slipping, his head jerking up, resistant. It occurs to her that he could be asleep right now. She could open his door and find him curled up in the green chair, a line of drool glistening on his jaw, if she were to open the door. She scoots her chair back against the wall, stands up, and heads to the conference room. She pulls a fresh sheet of paper out of the fax machine and sits down at the big oak table, marker in hand. Dear neighbor, she begins. Where are you? What do you? Who? She writes quickly and instantly crosses it out. I'm sorry, she begins on a fresh sheet, but can't think of a way to finish the sentence or why she started in this way. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, she writes, before pushing it aside. She lays out another and stares at it for a long time. What am I after, she whispers out loud. Dear you, she writes slowly, deliberately, holding the paper tightly against the table. What are you doing in there? All I want is to, do, to know. Next door. She folds the note into an envelope and writes 2B on the back. She clutches the envelope in her hands until it's past five, then wonders if it's okay for her to go. There's been no sign of her boss for hours. She turns everything off, all the lights, all electronics. She sets the alarm and locks up. In front of 2B, she gets down on her knees and slides the envelope underneath the door, listening to the paper as it crinkles against the soft, nubby carpet. She walks slowly toward the stairwell, still hoping that she will hear something, anything out of the ordinary, anything opening, closing, unlocking, beginning. She pauses at the top of the stairs before continuing down and out into the parking lot. Space. Iris's alarm goes off at a quarter to six. She tries to shower quickly, but her daydreams are persistent. She's on a Ferris wheel overlooking the Grand Canyon when suddenly the wheel comes off its hinges and hurtles forward into the dusty maw.
Everyone is screaming, their hands gripping the sides of their candy-colored compartments. But the screaming stops as, one by one, they all notice that they've been hovering over the canyon for some time, the air acting as a cushion on which the Ferris wheel rests. She comes to with shampoo dripping down her face. She leans her head back into the spray to rinse it all out, lets the water run down over her skin before shutting it off and spitting into the drain. She dresses simply in a black cotton sleeveless dress and is in the car at 6.30, leaving the windows open to air dry her hair. Once at the office, she starts up the day's machinery, pressing buttons with a decisive index finger one by one. She waits. She listens to voicemail and writes down her boss's one message, which she then leaves on top of a pile of open leaves on top of a pile of unopened mail on his desk. Mr. Farquhar called. He needs you to call him back ASAP because he is at the end of his rope. No number. Then she hears what she's been waiting for. The angry mechanical bleat of the alarm, followed by the smack and the mumbled profanities, then the crackle of voices on the radio. She moves toward the door and presses her ear against it, creating a seal, a small private space between her head and the building. She imagines him shuffling about in a bathrobe, scratching his unshaven face and kicking things that get in his way. Or he could still be in bed. Or doing any other thing one might imagine. She shouldn't get ahead of herself. But in her head, in that sealed private space between her ear and the door, she can feel his awakening as a cloud that fills his room and sends cold vibrations through the doors and around her body, circling. She stands like this, waiting, but nothing follows. She never hears the door open or anything else. She wonders if he even got the note, if she even really left it. Maybe she could still take it back. Finally, she sits down at her desk and turns on her computer. There won't be anything today, she tells herself this. When the doorknob turns, though she's doing nothing wrong, she snaps to attention, puts on a serious look, and squints at her computer screen. Good morning, she offers, looking up at her boss as he enters the room. If you can call it that, he mutters, wrapping her desk with his knuckles as he passes. Box. Several days later, Iris arrives at the office and finds a box on her desk. She sees it as soon as she turns on the lights and stares at it while she deactivates the alarm system. She drops her purse beside her desk and looks at it from the side. It's about the size of a brick and has been taped so thoroughly, so determinedly, that it shines like liquid. She's almost afraid to touch it. She keeps her eyes locked on it as she turns on her computer and checks voicemail, as though she thinks it will vanish if she looks away. When she can't stall any longer, she picks it up. It's as light as a piece of paper. With a letter opener, she stabs a thin line around the edges and lifts off the top of the box like a lid. Inside, there's a white paper napkin folded in half. She opens it, and inside are written the words, I'm very busy. Don't ask. Ask me later. I'm not here. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.